Has anybody here been handed a uh, Christian tract at some point in their life? If I say the word tract, do you know what I mean? Anybody not know what I mean? Other than Charles, who has been handed them before but doesn't recognize that that's what they are. See, growing up in an evangelical church, uh, there were a lot of tracts and pamphlets lying around. They were encouraged that you're supposed to pick them up and take them with you so that you can leave them under people's windshields and hand them to people and pretend like they're, uh, you know, hey, here's a comic book. Here's a bookmark um, when you're just trying to get it into people's hands, right? Um, So there's one tract in particular that has stuck with me. And I would like to transfer my spiritual trauma to you today by making you read it. Has anybody read this particular one? All right. You have. Has it st- It's a chick track, yeah, ma- made by Jack, by Jack Chick, I think is the guy's name, who made a bunch of these. They are the worst. Um, but this one in particular, and let me take you through it here. It was called This Was Your Life, and in it... We meet a gentleman who is just a normal sort of fella, and he suddenly dies, conveniently while uh, drinking some alcohol and smoking a cigar, because he's a bad guy. And uh, he suddenly dies. He's taken to heaven by a no-nonsense angel who says very little. And uh, once he arrives, he has to wait in the waiting room, because even heaven has a waiting room down here. And then... From the side, you hear, next, because heaven also is a DMV. And we end up here before this faceless, terrifying, large, shining person who presumably is God. And then you see these words, review his life. Yes, Lord. And then the screen comes down and the lights dim. And then we get to watch every single moment of this guy's life. We get to see all of the good things when he's a baby, but then we also get to see him uh, right here. And I'm just going to read this to you. He says, ha ha, hey guys, this is the dirtiest story I've ever heard. It goes like this. Over here, he's uh, peeking around a corner going, mmm, nice. (laughs) So you're supposed to know that this is not a great guy because... uh, of that. So he starts to freak out in embarrassment while every person who has ever lived in the history of the world is watching his entire life and all of his secret thoughts and moments. And we've got this terrified over here. He's he's a gossip, he's a he's a slanderer, he's a thief. And then the last straw is him in church over here not paying attention whatsoever thinking about the football game that he's about to miss. Does anybody relate? And he gets up and he goes, I don't need this Christ. I'll find it my own way. And then over here, here he is in heaven watching this. He falls on his knees and he repents and he says, I was so foolish. What was I thinking? Can I have a second chance? And God doesn't respond, right? God simply says, open the book of life. (laughs) The angel says, ah, he's not in here. And then God says, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then he is. Ta-da! And that's the story. That's the whole story. (laughs) 
yes. Casually thrown into a pit of fire uh, because his name was not in a book. Emotionless and bureaucratic like a heavenly DMV. And this is how I imagined the afterlife for a large portion of my life. And if I'm being honest, this still informs the way that I think about the afterlife. I imagine that when Jesus would come back, he would bring out the big screen. Let's put that away. Bring out the big screen TV and everyone would have their entire lives shown before everyone else. All the embarrassing little things you didn't want anyone to know. They'd be scrutinized and dissected and judged by every single person. And after it's all over, God's going to decide whether you're good enough to make it into heaven. So sometimes when I was young, I would uh, narrate my life. I would justify myself to the camera in the sky so that at the end when we're watching it together, then the people who were watching, like, you know, my mom and dad were watching, they'd understand what I was thinking and doing because this is a totally normal thing for a child to do, right? But I never doubted the truth of these tracts because after all, they're covered with Bible verses. Every single thing they say has a proof text to it right underneath of it. So, of course, I'm not going to doubt any of it. So when you die, you go directly to a faceless, nameless, graceless God who determines whether or not you're on the guest list. And if you are, you go up to the clouds. And if you don't, you are tormented forever with no agony and no second chances. So you'd better make sure you are thinking about your sins constantly, all the time, all day long. You need to be thinking about the very various ways that you are disappointing God every single moment of your life if you're going to live in this way. I was saved, but I was far from safe. Can any of you relate to this? Were any of you you handed this story from a pastor, a parent, or a guy with a megaphone? I think that hell as we know it has certainly been a popular and influential story in the history of the church, but it was never the only story. In fact, it wasn't even the first story, and I don't even think it's a very good story. But to explain what I mean by that, first I have to blow your minds. Are you ready? Jesus, wait for it, was not a white man. I'm serious. He was not an American white man either. Turns out the guy was Jewish. He wasn't even, all right, Charlie, that's enough. He wasn't even a Christian. He was a Jew. And all all those disciples and people that we keep talking about who wrote the rest of the New Testament and all that, All of them, Jews. Well, Luke, maybe. He was half Jewish. But all of them, Jewish, steeped in Jewish culture. I think the whitewashing of Jesus is one of the most unfortunate and disastrous turns in the history of the Western world. Honestly, within Jesus' Jewish context, he stands like an oak tree with these roots that go deep, deep, deep down into this groundwater of this wisdom tradition that goes back thousands of years. The Western white Jesus is more like a bonsai tree that's kept alive and attractive by constant attention, a mere image of a tree. 
So the Jewish wisdom tradition was forged by thousands of years in the fire of empire and oppression. The Jewish people are now and have always been the underdog. And their God is the God of the underdog. They rejected the story of empire and instead told a different story. One of persistence, one of mutual caring, and one of the justice of God, which makes all things new. But here's the thing that makes Jewish justice unique. Makes it unique among all of the other wisdom traditions of that time period. Is that it's not retributive justice. It's not scorched earth justice. It's not empire justice. It's not crushing people under your feet and ruling over them with an iron fist justice. It's God's justice. And the justice of the underdog administers justice differently than the people of earth. The God of the underdog lifts up the lowly and humbles the mighty that they might meet on the same plane together. That the victim and the victimizer might come together in unity and both be healed together. There is always reconciliation in God's justice. Even in the bleakest of prophecies in, in the, the Hebrew prophets, there is always a garden that grows from the smoldering ashes. There is always a new creation that comes from it. There is always something that grows from it. The lion lays down with the lamb. The lion isn't slaughtered so the lamb can thrive. The lion lays down with the lamb. The mountain and the valley become level ground. Swords are beaten into plowshares. People study war no more. You need to read Jesus as somebody who is steeped in this wisdom tradition. Jesus only makes sense through the lens of the oppressed. White American Jesus is nonsensical. <laughs> we could not be farther from Jesus's context right now. The United States spends more on its military than the next 10 countries combined. We have active military bases in 85 countries right now. During the war in Afghanistan, we spent two, uh, $20 billion a year on air conditioning. Jesus makes no sense in that context of an empire that grand. There is no world in which the biblical Jesus sanctifies the American empire. And yet, there is no denying that for the past 2,000 years, the majority of the bloodshed in the Western world has been done in his name. And no doubt at some point you've been given this version of Jesus. Because I know I have. The white American Jesus that I was given was not a liberator, but a conqueror. He didn't bring justice. He brought law and order and threat of eternal punishment in hell if you didn't accept his help. His help from himself at that. That's not salvation. That's racketeering. That's God showing up and saying, hey, that's a nice soul you got there. We'll be ashamed if something were to happen to it. You know, there's a lot of lot of fires out these days, and lots of souls are getting burned. But you know what? If if uh, you know you work for me, I can make sure you're protected. That makes no sense for the God of the underdog, but it makes perfect sense for the God of the empire. 
So if hell is the tool of the empire, then what did the early church believe before the empire? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> See, say, asking the question of what the early church believes is kind of a silly question because there was no central belief for the first couple hundred years. There were lots of diversity of belief around, um, around the, the Christian world, as it were, around the Mediterranean. But for the first 500 years or so, there were three main ideas about what happens to a, a person after death. The first group of people believed that the dead are dead, and that's it. And then at the end of all things, Christ will return and will bring, breathe life back into God's people. And those people will be given new and eternal life and will live together with God and with each other in paradise. And the dead who died without Christ stay dead. Because nothing can exist without being connected to the source of all life. And so if you're not connected to Christ, you don't exist. There was a second group who believed that, yes, there is a hell. But hell is a purifying fire. Hell is something that you encounter that burns away the parts of you that have not been covered by Christ. That are still need to be uh, changed and helped before you are ready to enter into paradise. And in that way, eventually, God will lead everyone through that period of sanctification and uh, onward into paradise. The third group believed that immediately after death, a person was judged according to their sins and the righteous went to eternal paradise and the wicked were sent to eternal conscious suffering in hell. Now I want to be clear that each one of these three positions uh, these groups, they all had brilliant and faithful Christians within them. Pillars of the early church. Heroes of the early church. People who took the Bible seriously. All three of these positions have grounding in scripture that I don't have time to get into right now. <laughs> they were not fringe groups. But of those three positions, that last one, the eternal conscious suffering for bad people, that was the minority position. That one had a hard time catching traction anywhere in the Christian world, except for one place. Where do you think that sort of belief would make the most sense? Rome. That sort of belief makes perfect sense in the heart of the empire. So that is really the only school the only location where that uh, position was held. But you know what happened in the first couple hundred years of the church? Uh, Rome, the, the Roman emperors started to become Christian, and Christianity started to become uh, more popularized and eventually became the official religion of the empire. And after some time, the uh, emperors started to have some say into uh, the doctrines of the church. The, uh, the bishop of Rome became the pope, who got a lot more power than otherwise. And this all came to a head in 543 when the emperor Justinian asked the bishops to convene a council to officially declare the other two positions heresy and accept only the one position that was held in Rome. And he argued, and I'm not kidding, this is in a letter, that the, without the threat of eternal punishment, people would become lazy and rebellious. So you've got to scare people into being good. 
He then said, quote, What was the purpose of his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection? And, and what of all those who fought the good fight and suffered martyrdom for the sake of Christ? What benefit will their suffering have been to them if in the final restoration they will receive the same reward as sinners and demons? Yes, that's right, friends. His two main arguments were, we need to threaten people to keep them in line, and universal salvation just isn't fair. <laughs> and to both of those objection, objections, Jesus told a parable. He said, a landowner went into town to find workers to work the fields. He found a group of people that looked fit and able to work the whole day long. He said, I want to pay you a denarius, which is a full living wage for the day. I want to pay you a living wage today to go work. And they said, yes, please. He came back a couple hours later, found another group of people, said, I want you to work for the rest of the day. I'm going to give you a living wage. He said, yes. He went back every couple of hours until it was an hour before sundown. And he found the people that were left who were likely older and more hobbled and not able to work as hard. And he said, I want you to work in my field for an hour and I will pay you a living wage. And then when the day ended, he made sure to pay those people first so that everyone else would see what he was up to. And he gave that person who worked one hour the same payment that he gave the person who worked their entire life. And the people, well, the entire day, sorry. And the people who worked for the entire day felt that it just wasn't fair. According to my head math here, if you paid a denarius for one hour and I worked for eight hours, I should get eight denariuses. And the landowner looked at them and said, it's my money. Did I cheat you? No. I can do what I want with it. Why are you jealous because I'm generous? Or literally, why, are, why is your eye evil because I am good? Each one was paid a living wage, and everyone received what was promised. No one was cheated. The payment was the same because the landowner wasn't concerned with productivity or with economics or with the bottom line or making a profit for his shareholders that month. He was concerned with the well-being of each and every one of those workers that he brought to the field. Likewise, salvation is a free gift given freely. You did not earn it with good behavior, with perfect church attendance, with correct beliefs. And God is free to give it to whomever God wants to for whatever reason. You know, time and time again, I will sit with people who are struggling with their faith, often deconstructing an earlier faith they were handed. And this is the sticking point for them. Hell is a sticking point for them because it's like we intuitively know that the God who would go through extraordinary lengths to come to earth, to be with us, to love us, to save us, the God who constantly says, I desire that all should be brought back to me, the God who tells the story of leaving 99 sheep to go find one sheep who's stuck and lost and bring them back, that God, we are also supposed to believe, has created a system and crafted unimaginable torture for the vast majority of humans for all time. And that doesn't sit well with most people, just intuitively. But most of us 
Uh, we just assume, since everyone seems so, so sure about this belief, and it's been around for so long that it must just be a firmly established biblical fact. But friends, that's just not the case. It's basically non-existent in the Hebrew scriptures. It's vaguely referenced in the Christian scriptures. It's a minority opinion among the church of the first 500 years. So if you were to ask me plainly today, what happens when we die? I would tell you that the God that I meet in scripture is always drawing wider and wider circles of inclusion. The God I meet in scripture goes through incredible lengths to bring every sheep back to the fold. And I think that one way or another, everyone gets home. And I'm going to be honest with you. There are people that I don't want to see in heaven because they don't deserve to be there. And if I bump into them, I'm going to have some words. But that tells me that God is going to have to work on me too before I'm ready to go home. So at the end of the day, the power to grant eternal life belongs to God alone. So I cannot say with certainty what will happen to every person. But the God that I meet in Jesus will not stop until every single one of his children is safe at home. So let us find comfort and strength. And may God's overwhelmingly generous grace inspire us to greater acts of compassion in the days ahead.